Chapter Twenty of On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck by Robert Pitcher Woodward. Chapter Twenty A Donkey for Alderman by Pie Pod. Full in the midst the polished table shines, and the bright goblets, rich with generous wines, now each partakes the feast the wine prepares, portions the food, and each the portion shares. Nor till the rage of thirst and hunger ceased to the high host approach the sagacious guest. Homer's Odyssey I left my embryo caravan in Oak Park for the night, and returned to the auditorium hotel. The clerk greeted me with, Well, well, grasped my outstretched hand, and with a smile said, I thought your picturesqueness had left us for good. Then, pulling a pen out of the vegetable pen stand, which squinted, How to do? with one remaining eye, he handed it to me. I'm a hard customer to get rid of, I remarked. Could not get out of the city entirely this day, though I've traveled miles. Jack's at Oak Park, saloon bar, best I could find. No hotel. Got to eat and sleep, you know. And having said this, I walked majestically to the lift. Seventh floor, queried the elevator boy. No, dining room, I corrected, patting my stomach fondly. Pretty late for feed, guess, observed the lad discouragingly, as we began to rise. There's a banquet on now, continued the lad. Great Balaam, I am late, I exclaimed. I've been a week saving my appetite for this dinner. Let her slide, kid, there, and I hurried to the dining room. I knocked persistently against the locked doors while savory odors drifted through the keyhole and was soon admitted by the assistant head waiter. I smile now as I recall that watermelon grin when the darky yawned like a coal bin in expression of his greeting. I'm somewhat embarrassed, Jim, to appear so tardy, I began. I had about decided to deny myself the honor and pleasure of the event. You see, my friends are all togged out in their pigeon-tails while... Just look at me. Why, Master Tagras, sure, they will be glad to... Yes, yes, I know they would be more pleased to see me in my odd regulation clothes. But no, not this time, Jim. Close your scuttle, mum's the word. Just let me eat in this snug corner where I can hear the strains of the orchestra out of reach of their stale jokes. Fetch on the viands. As I concluded, I pressed a coin into the mahogany hand and took from my coat a button containing Max and Pod's photo and gave it to the delighted darkie. There was novelty in this strange situation. It was the only feast I remembered ever having attended uninvited. Across the spacious hall, obscured by Japanese screens, sat the garrulous banqueters, blissfully ignorant of my presence, while I, a famished and jaded nomad, 
sat comfortably drinking in the liquid music of the serenade and inflating my gastronomical pipes with terrapin, squab, robin's eggs, salad, and other dainties galore. Presently I was served with something more mellifluous than music, as Jim appeared with a bottle of that familiar sparkling liquid, which is proverbially wrapped in cobwebs and frost in a pail of ice, and said, Believe you, said mum, sa, be dis yo taste, Master Tagris? My eyes eloquently expressed my sentiments. Oh, what a nerve tissue a donkey journey does create! As I quaffed the soul-stirring nectar, I thought of Mac Aroni, how he would have relished a quart of that sterling brand, and then poured a bumper for him and drank it to his very good health. When I had finished, I called the waiter and said, with visible effort, Jim, I wish you would tell the bandmaster, here Jim poked a napkin into his mouth, that a tardy guest heartily requests the patriotic tune Macaroni's come to town. Go, Jim, that's a good girl. And Jim went. That waiter was the cleverest darky I ever came across. We all well know that one trait of a thoroughbred darky is the faculty for invention. Imagine my surprise when the fellow returned with a gentleman in full dress and introduced me. I, expecting to catch something different, failed to catch his name. My new acquaintance seemed to feel highly honored with the presentation. He appeared a bit staggered, though, and with difficulty found my wandering hand. Taking my arm, he escorted and introduced me to the convivial assembly as the distinguished guest of the evening. Though somewhat belated, nevertheless his genial presence duly appreciated. When he mentioned the name of Professor Pythagoras Pod, such applause issued from the unsteady occupants of the hundred chairs that I, thinking it my courteous duty to join in the encore, clapped my hands vigorously. This seemed to provoke great merriment. The laughter and clapping grew louder and louder, until hands and throats were inadequate to express the jubilant spirits of the banqueters, and they began to stamp their feet. Finally all arose, threw in the air imaginary hats, broke glasses of wine, and in fact I don't know what would have happened if the manager had not entered the scene. Finally someone called, Speech! Speech! A speech from Mr. Pod! I tried to respond. I didn't believe the guests knew who I was, other than a pod of some sort. The hotel manager did, but he had gone. I therefore decided not to reveal my identity. I would act the invited guest I was taken to be. I did not speak long. What I said was ostensibly so appropriate, so pointed, so witty, so apropos, that the frequent cries of, Here, here, told me I had made a hit, and it was time to stop. I have no recollection of what I said on that momentous occasion but I apologized for the abruptness of my departure on the plea that I had six more banquets to attend that evening, whereas I had but one stomach. Wild cheers and hand-clapping greeted my speech. When quiet was restored, I offered the following toast, 
asking all to rise with filled goblets. Hick, here's to the man, boys, here's to the man who, who, hick, has the sagacity gall and who can partake of the bless, bless hick, of bless of the earth, though unbidden, without revealing the jack, hick, he has ridden. Here to his pocket, and here's to hick, his purse, May Balaam shed tears when hick he rides in a hearse. With a concerted bravo, all drank my health. Then, hat in hand, I followed a very tortuous route out and to the elevator, and soon afterward found the keyhole of my chamber door and retired. I did not feel well in the morning, but nevertheless journeyed to the Oak Park at an early hour. What a surprise awaited me at the barn. The air was dense with the odor of beer. I had hardly anticipated the trouble brewing. Nothing was so foreign to my thoughts as the possibility of finding two asinine inebriates and a jagged canine instead of the sober company I left the evening before. But there they lay, both donkeys paralyzed, panting and blear-eyed. An overturned beer keg swam in the deluge of froth that flooded the floor. Mac must have pulled the bung out of the keg. The fellow looked guilty enough, but when I recalled my own recent dissipation, I didn't have the heart to upbraid him. I was perplexed. What could I do? To resume my pilgrimage that morning was out of the question. I felt in my bones that as soon as the saloon-keeper learned of the calamity, I, Pythagoras Pod, would have to pay damages. Such I could not well afford. Why not go to the man and enter a complaint against him for harboring knockout drops and consequently causing my valuable animal's ruination of mind, physique, and moral character? A capital idea. No sooner thought than done. The man was speechless. Why, I exclaimed, pounding my fist hard down on the oaken bar, think of it, a day's delay may lose me my five thousand dollar wager. Think of it, man, five thousand dollars. I would have said more, but I noticed the Hibernian was knocked completely out of the metaphorical ring by my unequivocal utterances. His blanched countenance showed that his conscience smote him, he paced the barroom floor like a leopard, trying to get away from his spots. Presently he stopped, and thrusting his fingers through his goatee, looked out in time to witness Mac Aroni turn a headspring from the barn door. Begory, he exclaimed, if I had that mule, I'd ruin him for the alderman of the tenth ward, sure, and it's poor air and water the bys votin' fur. It's this I'm saying, Mr. Pod, I'll give you twenty-five boons for the brute in his present condition. I will that, and call it square. Max certainly was acting very compromisingly, but I explained to the Irishman no reasonable sum could purchase that particular donkey, and furthermore that twenty-five dollars would barely satisfy my claims. The exclamation of, Holy mither! checked me for the moment, and as the man looked barnward, he added eloquently, shaking his fists, I'm damned if the scapegrace ain't mixed drinks. 
here's Mr. Rooney, and I rushed out in the nick of time to prevent my crazy Jack from tapping a whiskey barrel standing in the shed adjoining the barn. Mr. Pod, a curse on my soul, if I would ruin the blatherskate for doorkeeper of the penitentiary. Here's ten dollars. Tear the likes of it in two, and ruin and buy a bromo seltzer, and sober the toper up at once. I took the proffered note, and had gone but a hundred feet, when the Irishman called to me, Hold on, before you leave, for the space of a moment, mind that you put some muzzle on the astrophoid reprobate with the bobtail ears, and spring a time lock on the creature. The animals having been dosed, I was about to question myself, what next, when my host said cordially, Sure, and will you feed with us? You may keep the change from the skin plaster, and good luck in store for yous. Now come on to grub, and leave the brutes alone. They'll be after having their sea legs soon. And Pat succeeded in conciliating me and escorted me to the house. By one o'clock my disgraceful donkeys answered to roll call, and with touching humility submitted to be saddled. With such disappointing interpositions of fate, the golden gate seemed to be a decade removed. For a while the donks were wavering, and their pedals unreliable, but after the first hour they meandered along quite acceptably. As Mac was slow to recuperate, I rode cheese. He was surprisingly sure of foot, whereas Mac, swell-headed, drowsy-eyed, and swaying, couldn't have walked a straight line a yard wide unless it was a yard of grass. He walked with a suspicious tread, like one venturing on ice, which threatened his death-bath any moment. When the afternoon was well advanced, Cheese showed symptoms of lameness in his nigh foreleg, as I had feared, in consequence of his late circus. We passed Maywood and Elmhurst as we followed the main-traveled road, I was compelled to dismount and lead my cripple four miles to Lombard. Such was my luck in the state of Illinois. It was after dark, the second day out of Chicago, and still we had traveled but twenty miles. To think, that munificent gift, cheese, was already an invalid on my hands. I summoned a veterinary surgeon and listened to his diagnosis with solicitous attention. Only a strain of the shoulder muscles, said he. Must have run, hop, skip, and jumped to get such a strain. Does he ever play golf? Will require a full week's rest. The doctor rendered his professional opinion with the air of a metropolitan specialist prescribing a trip to Europe for some delicate society bell. Next morning I rode in company with a good fellow two miles into the country where I purchased a very long-eared, shapeless donkey of a good character, and quickly rode him bareback to town. Then I sold my cripple at auction in the public square. The cumbersome pack-boxes which the sturdy macaroni had borne without a murmur, I also sold to pay the doctor's bill. The following day saw me in the town of Wheaton, whose reputed beauty I failed to appreciate in a pouring rain. I remained there over Saturday night and Sunday. The clipping of cheese, too, on Monday morning, 
proved to be an exhibition well worth witnessing at a safe distance. That model character turned out to have the temper of a vixen. First a rope was twisted round his nose, then his four legs were tied securely together, and finally six strong men held him down on the floor to permit the finishing touches to his vibrating limbs, while carefully avoiding the finishing touches to their lives. Instantly the half-dozen assistants were sent sprawling across the floor in all directions, while the stable dog chased an imaginary bird into space and landed in a poultry-yard. The frightened donkey was mad, or had a fit. On the other hand, Mac, in the noisy excitement, pumped his bronchial organs to their utmost capacity, and Don joined in the chorus, till any passer-by might easily have mistaken the barn for a slaughterhouse. Finally, the unruly subject was got under control, and in time released on bail, of hay. I verily believe that the electricity generated by that clipped donkey, if stored, could have propelled a trolley for twenty-four hours. During the ensuing week, the villages of Geneva, Elberon, Maple Park, and Cortland, in turn, greeted me with the usual curiosity and concern, and I was spared to enter DeKalb on Wednesday evening, after a most distressing adventure. When we had proceeded about two miles beyond Cortland, I unchained my dog for a short sportive recess. I rode Mac, and about three feet to our right ambled cheese, a chain connecting his bit with my saddle-horn. My little troop was peacefully traversing the smooth country road, when suddenly Don came bounding down the highway, chasing a little red calf, the dog barking gleefully, the calf bellowing with fright. Drawing my revolver, I fired to distract Don's attention, but without avail. A few moments later, as I was aiming at a flock of blackbirds, I heard the ominous clatter of hoofs rapidly approaching us from the rear, accompanied by a deep, hoarse mooing, which clearly emanated from a calf of mature years. Imagine my feelings when, turning in my seat, I beheld an enraged cow racing with Don in a beeline for me, the dog in the lead going a mile a minute, the bovine a mile and a quarter. It was the first I had known Don to flee from a foe. His eye now protruded, his tongue hung out a foam, and his tail lay back straight like an arrow. As I remember, the dog passed under the chain connecting my donkeys, and instantly, with the force of a locomotive, something alive plunged into our midst, striking the chain. How many double somersaults I turned I know not. How many minutes we remained in the dusty road overturned in a heap I can only estimate from the distance the lucky dog must have traveled to get out of sight so soon. My first mental reflection was that the cow must be the calf's mother. My second thought was to save my life. I managed somehow to crawl out from under the animated heap, and then surveyed the situation. The cow's horns were fast in the chain, and one of her feet in the saddle gear, and she tossed her head savagely, every time lifting one donkey or the other bodily off the ground, and dropping him in a heap in the dust. She kicked and bellowed until finally breaking loose, minus a horn, she made for me, head down, innocent as I was. 
I didn't stop to argue, but lit out for the barbed wire fence with that outraged mother at my heels. I have heard you can tell how fast a man thinks by the way he eats. You could have told how fast I thought by the way I ran. Over the fence I leaped, leaving my long coat-tail hanging from the top strand of wire. The cow, blinded with rage, made a lunge at the piece of cloth, only to lacerate her head on the barbs. Then she jumped the fence and took after me, tail in the air and foam dripping from her mouth. A small tree stood by the roadside not far distant, and I cleared the fence again and made for it. Although not an expert at climbing, I shinned aloft like a squirrel, and for a moment expected the bovine to follow. She reared on her haunches and pawed furiously at the swaying branches. Then, backing several feet, she charged headlong against the sapling, almost dislocating every bone of my body and every hair of my head. All but shaken out of the treetop, I contrived to gather in my legs and to wind them round the slender trunk. Then I reached for my revolvers. My Colt forty-four was missing, but with my Smith and Wesson thirty-two I peppered that cow until I shot away a section of her tail and sent her off in a cloud of dust like a howling, raging cyclone in the direction of her calf. I waited a while before venturing down to look for my animals now conspicuous for their absence. Darkness had settled on the scene. Groping my way up the road, I soon stumbled over a pair of boots, further on a camera, and a hundred yards beyond my Winchester rifle, minus its holster. Still no sign of donkeys or dog. I stopped at a farmhouse and inquired, Have you seen two jackasses strolling this way? The agriculturalist pulled his goatee as he surveyed me from foot to crown and replied, No, I ain't seen two jackasses strollin' this way, but a whole herd of em came tearin' past my barnyard, a-kitin' about an hour ago. Scarin' the cattle I was milkin' into fits. Why, the brain and takin' on of the wild beasts caused a stampede of my whole guard darn dairy. What be a pesterin' round these parts with a herd of wild jackasses? My response was terse, and was given before the man had finished. I hurried on, making inquiries at other farmhouses before I found my fugitive caravan huddling together in a corral a mile beyond. My dog was with them, but no cows or calves, Borrowing a lantern and two halters, I retraced my steps down the highway, my unwilling animals in tow, and resaddled and packed them as best I could. Then I returned the loan and hastened to town. End of chapter 20 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina